So it <clears throat> wasn't that long ago that we knew how to tell stories that inspired the best from our boys and our men. And today, not only are those kinds of stories increasingly rare, but they've been replaced with a much more toxic narrative around masculinity and manhood. Um, in her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, Nancy Piercy uh, quotes some of the following um, cultural signposts of the last number of years. The Washington Post ran an article by a gender studies professor entitled, Why Can't We Hate Men? The New Statesman featured a British feminist writing, you can't hate all men, can you? Well, actually I can. As a class, I hate men. There's even been a trending hashtag, kill all men at different points on Twitter. And you can buy t-shirts that read, so many men, so little ammunition. Books published with titles, I Hate Men, The End of Men, and Are Men Necessary? Those are all books that right now you can purchase on Amazon. <clears throat> One of uh, the author of a book called Refusing to Be a Man, who is a man himself, he says, talking about how healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Toxic and masculine are used together so often that they're really understood increasingly to be both sides of the same coin. USA Today says, at today's universities, masculinity is almost never discussed except in negative terms and usually with the word toxic attached. And this was an interesting study that uh, Nancy Piercy uh, quoted from uh, a Pew survey, small sample size, only a few hundred people, so not statistically like totally verifiable, but it was a word association test um, with men. 100% of the men said the descriptor masculine is negative when it's connected to a woman. So if you use masculine to describe a woman, 100% of men said, yeah, that's a, I have a negative association with that. 80% of men said, I have a negative association with masculine being a descriptor of a man. Four to five men held negative connotations to the word masculine. But that's not surprising because there's so little in our culture that is um, uh, so little about masculinity in our culture that is celebrated. Right? And so young men can grow up feeling defeated demoralized because they sense, even indirectly, but often directly, that they are living in a culture that is hostile towards masculinity. And if you doubt that, then go to any man, but certainly a young man, and just ask the question, is it good to be a man? And watch the hesitancy with which they try and articulate an answer to that. Now what happens when this kind of posture towards masculinity in men takes hold in the culture? What happens when this sort of becomes the air that everyone breathes and you don't even sort of recognize it anymore? It's just normalized? 
what should we expect to see as these kinds of views become commonplace? <clears throat> Nancy Piercy says, if you think that masculinity is the problem, then emasculization is the solution. Emasculation is the solution. If you think that masculinity is the problem, then emasculation is the solution. And there's really only two roads that that leaves open to men in our culture. The first is the road of aggressive or even just mild shame and self-loathing. And that leads to ultimately way more disengagement, deaths of despair, right? These are deaths from drugs, alcohol, suicide, and these result from men feeling discouraged, disengaged, disconnected, disillusioned, picking up the not-so-subtle signals of are men necessary? Why can't we hate all men? Masculinity, what it means to be a man and express yourself in the world just is toxic. That has an effect on a man's soul. Australian researcher Fiona Shand and her colleagues looked at all the words men who have attempted suicide most often used to describe themselves. And guess what the top two were? Just guess. Was that? Nope. Useless and worthless. Those are the top two. I'm sure those ones showed up. But useless and worthless. And so one path that men can take is this path of quiet despair. But the other path that men can take in a culture that speaks predominantly negatively about what it means to be a man is a path of rebellion, a path of resistance. This, is, um, this can lead men to hear these messages and maybe rightly in some cases get defensive and to want to push back. And there's anger there, and you can adopt an angry, misogynistic, proud, defiant, self-centered worldview where you're like, you know what, this culture doesn't want me, no worries, I'll just, I'll live for myself. And they begin chasing, in a self-centered way, power and possessions and pleasure. And they just ignore the, um, any responsibility that they might have to other people. This is sort of like the, uh, um, she talks about the barbarian man, uh, kind of like the manosphere on YouTube or social media, kind of like the Andrew Tates of the world, where in defiance to this message that men are toxic, you sort of swing to this uh, hyper-aggressive, dominating, controlling amplification of the worst impulses of the human heart and certainly of masculinity. And again, that can be expressed in a very loud way kind of like the Andrew Tates of the world and the manosphere, but it can also be expressed in a quieter way where men just resolve within their hearts to just stop giving a damn. And they retreat into, and I'll use sensitized language because there's younger ears here, spending lots of time on the internet, lots of time in cheap dopamine hits and video games and disengagement, uh, chasing pleasure, um, this is kind of like the stereotypical young man who's 35 or 40 and still living in their parents' basement, disengaged and rebelling against a culture that says, 
We don't appreciate you. There's no space for you here. And so between these two secular scripts, men is unnecessary and dangerous and damaging, and the men who say, kind of live with a middle finger towards the culture and say, I'm going to live however I want to live. We're incubating a culture where men feel demoralized and discouraged. Young men feel unwanted and unneeded. And the, and, and the price we pay is we. We pay the price. Like collectively we pay the price. To have angry or passive disengaged men. To have actively antagonistic and aggressive and destructive men. We all lose out on the blessing. In our families, our marriages, our churches, our communities of having strong, healthy, good men being a part of our lives. And so we desperately need to recover a vision for masculinity that is constructive and healthy and inspiring. Calls our boys and men to something great. And so this morning I want to proclaim good news and I want to say a few things that I'm very sure many of the men in this room have not heard in a long time. It is good to be a man. Men are necessary. And men are invaluable. And masculinity is meant to be a gift to the world. I'll go one further. I'm going to say Christianity is uniquely positioned to offer a vision for manhood that is inspiring and corrective and constructive and beneficial, not just for men, but for women and children and society as a whole. The simplest way you could talk about the biblical story, the story that stretches from Genesis all the way through Revelation, is kind of four major pillars, four truths, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, or sometimes called restoration. This is the plot line of the Bible. I want to explain it quickly and then connect it to why this is so important for men to know this. So creation, God created everything. It was good. Opening pages of Genesis. God creates humanity, male and female, in his image. Humanity has a divine purpose that no other creatures, no other creation has. God calls them to be fruitful and multiply. He calls them both to fill the earth and subdue it. That's called the creation mandate. God gives humanity the raw materials and says, make something of the world, develop its potential, create new possibilities that bring glory to me and blessing to others. Be a blessing to creation and to each other. But then in chapter three, we see what's called the fall. Humanity rebels against the creator. They reject God's command, they exchange their own, um, they exchange God from the throne of their lives and say, I'm going to rule myself. I'm going to live separately from God. I'm going to do what seems right in my own eyes. And this rejection of God is called sin, and it infects every person and every part of God's creation. There's a fall from the created order's original goodness, and now that goodness isn't gone, but it's contaminated and poisoned by a power that the Bible calls sin. And so there's suffering and disease and conflict and injustice and pain within ourselves, between ourselves, as we try and even do good things in the world, sometimes as an unintended consequence. But for humanity, it's now more and more natural 
to just do what seems right in our own eyes and hold up things that are good even when they are destructive, even when they are damaging to the ecosystem of reality. But the third movement, redemption, God doesn't leave us in this disaster. God begins to graciously and patiently work to redeem and restore humanity back to their intended right relationship with him and with themselves and with each other and with their calling in the world, their purpose, to undo the curse of sin. And that redemptive plan culminates in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus because that, those events open up a possibility for sinners, those under the power and penalty of sin, which is everybody in this room, to find peace with God and to be liberated from sin's power and penalty. And so those who turn to Jesus are born into a new hope, a new identity, and a new mission. And then new creation, Jesus, who first came in a manger in humility, the Bible says he will return in power and glory to restore all of creation to God's original intention. He's going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Sin will be destroyed. Death will be destroyed. Disease will be destroyed. There will be no more tears, no more mourning. All things will be made new. And those who have said yes to Jesus' invitation to redemption in this life will be invited into that future forever. Now, if creation, fall, redemption, new creation feels a little bit too like, ooh, churchy language, I can translate it for men. Make something, God made it, we broke it, God's repairing it, and eventually God's going to provide an upgrade. So that that which was lost is even better than before. Now, how does this framework help men? How does this overall plot line of the Bible help men? Well, number one, creation, what that establishes is that your manhood, your masculinity is a good thing. God created the heavens and the earth, places male and female humanity as the pinnacle of his creation, and then says, you saw everything that he made, and it was very good. It's good to be a man. It's good to be created in God's image as male. There's a divine purpose to your manhood. Now, fall is helpful because we realize in ourselves, we see it. There's all kinds of ways in which our masculinity can genuinely express itself in damaging and toxic ways. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. The Bible condemns those expressions of the human heart, whether they come through male or female. But there are, um, there are ways in which, as a man, we are particularly tempted to adopt a genuinely self-centered, truly toxic, and deeply harmful posture towards our relationships, ourselves, and the world. And so this framework helps us to realize I'm, I'm valuable, I'm important, my manhood is good, but my manhood is also corrupted. There's a war going on. It's not as easy as just some good men, some, some bad men. Are you a good man? Are you a bad man? Yeah. I have this created goodness that has been corrupted by a sinful nature. But then redemption, that God wants to help us as men. God wants to restore us, to heal us to renovate our hearts and our lives and our minds, to right relationship with him, to a proper understanding of what it means to be a man in this world and how to express our masculinity in the world in constructive ways and beautiful ways and life-giving ways within our marriages and families and communities. 
and then new creation, we hear and we see in the pages of the New Testament that manhood and masculinity will continue in the new creation. Manhood and masculinity are a feature of God's good design. They're not bugs. They're not a virus that has gotten into the software and somehow contaminated things. And therefore, your manhood, your masculinity, at its core is not something that you should be ashamed of. God values men. He values masculinity. And the reason why this is so important is that it will save you as a man from the two secular scripts that are unoffered from our culture. From the script of shame and self-loathing, where that slow drip of everything associated with masculinity is negative, which is picking out the fall portion of that um, biblical script, that it's missing creation and redemption. That underneath the brokenness, there's a goodness and God wants to redeem it. And there is a way to live in the world as a man, which is so profoundly good. So a biblical framework, the biblical story, should give us confidence to completely reject the idea that we should be ashamed of our manhood, ashamed of our masculinity. But it should also save us from the temptation to say, oh, now we just live into that barbarian lifestyle. Pleasure, power, position, uh, prestige, uh, possessions. We're just going to accumulate, live for ourselves, live from our own ego or, and, and the basest um, selfish desires. No, because that wouldn't be recognizing, again, the goodness and that God wants and needs to redeem things about our man. Just loudly and proudly expressing whatever seems right to us in the arena of expressing masculinity is not healthy. It's not good. It can be very destructive. What it means to be a real man is not to be a barbarian that is simply chasing money and sex and power. And so this framework of creation, fall, redemption, new creation, it doesn't just save you from those dead ends of understanding masculinity. It also compels you towards a vision. And that vision is the good man. Nancy Piercy, uh, in her book, talks about a massive international study by a non-believing, um, not, not Christian, a sociologist, went to men all over the world, all different cultures, all different from, I think it was adolescence all the way up. And she asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? Same question. What does it mean? Sorry, it wasn't her, the sociologist. What does it mean to be a good man? And what was amazing is that the ideas were almost identical. There, there were some differences at the margins, but the core ideas kept coming up again and again and again. And it's almost like men know in their spiritual DNA, in their bones, what it means to be a good man. And that means that you know it. So you tell me, you, you throw out, uh, I, think, I think the specific question was phrased, at a eulogy, when someone refers to the, to the deceased as a good man, what do they mean by that? What are they referring to? So you tell me what you think a good man is, is characterized by. 
protector, caring and loving, putting others before themselves, all on the list so far. You're nailing it. Anything else? God first. Honest. Yep. Courageous. Good. Integrity. Yep. A lot of overlap. You guys did really well. Here's the official list. Compiled. Top answers. Honorable. Sorry, honor. Men of honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice. Men who are willing to do the right thing. Stand up for the little guy. Be a provider. Be a protector. Be responsible. And be generous. Yeah, ready to sacrifice yourself. Yeah, that had a that had a massive spectrum from daily sacrifices to willing to die for your family, community, country, God. See, men know, somewhere within us, we know this is who we were created to become. It's in our spiritual DNA. But our society, our secular society, has really lost the ability to hold out a vision like that, to... Um, reinforce these values in the life of men. I mean, I know there are voices out there. You have to go digging to find them. That's not in the social infrastructure of our culture. The competing voices within modern secularism are really only offering these two distortions. Be ashamed of your masculinity or reject that narrative and just go whole hog into the most immature, childish expression of your masculine impulses. Kind of like Peter Pan syndrome. Don't grow up. Just live for fun and pleasure. No responsibility. Kind of living into this uh, childish hedonism forever. So if you can't look to society for hope and guidance on what it means to be a good man, where can you look? Spoiler alert, Bible. Oh, guys, should be yelled out. I think the Bible is, is maybe the only hope for a uh, healthy, constructive vision for masculine. I really do. In his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is a training manual on what it means to live rightly before God and before other people. Across every dimension of life, finances, employment, and also our identities as men and women and our calling and expressions as men. And when you look to the Bible to understand masculinity and manhood, what do we find? Well, that's a big topic. We could talk about it for months and months and months. Maybe some of you want to do that. Maybe we can do like a book study discussion on this. But for now, let me just summarize it, um, kind of leaning into my... Lord of the Rings uh, love, which is, I, I really think, one of the ways of holding together the values and priorities that the scripture calls men to embody is that of, of the knight. The holy warrior who's compelled by a divine calling, who vows to protect others and serve their God and king. There's a reason why that archetype has been so powerful all over the world. There's something in the bones of men that stirs when the idea of a warrior set apart, harnessed by vows, committed to the highest good, 
and sent into the world to be a force for good and to use their power to be a blessing, a protection and provision to others. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes again to Timothy, he says, but you, man of God, flee from all of this, flee from a sinful lifestyle, the self-centeredness, the cheap pleasure and hedonism, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Be on your guard, Paul writes, to the entire church in 1 Corinthians 16. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Literally in the Greek, it means act like men. Be strong. Do everything in love. I want you to notice something about those two calls. Can you, do you see the dynamic creative tension that's created as some of these values and principles are held together? It's not just man up, don't cry, be tough, be strong. Pursue godliness. Love, gentleness. And then the next sentence, fight the good fight of faith. Be men of courage, be strong, but do everything in love. What other worldview holds out that kind of vision for manhood? And just to allay fears that 1 Corinthians uh, 13, that um, be men of courage, act like men, is meant to be seen as a summons away from acting like a woman or getting away from women. It's not. It's, um, it's an ancient way. The contrast isn't act like a man, not a woman. It's act like a man, not a child. So even the, 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 um, the way that ancients talked about growing up, as you would just say, you grow up into manhood, you adopt manhood. But that was applied to women too, because the, the idea was that you're no longer a child. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians say, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, but at some point I put childish ways behind me. I started to act like a man. That's not like a weird, um, narrow uh, gender stereotype. It's a summons to say man and woman, men and women are called to grow up, to be strong, and to do everything in love. The knight is someone, the good man is someone who lives into these values. He's passionate about these things. They, it's a man who battles the three core temptations that are listed in 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. A healthy, godly masculinity is strength and it's power. But it's those things used in service of others, leveraged to bless other people. Healthy, godly masculinity sees authority and takes authority, not because it says, oh, authority is a, is a leverage point through which I get to have whatever I want. But Nancy Piercy does a, a really interesting analysis of how the word authority was used before the Industrial Revolution. And it was almost always connected to your responsibility to take up certain duties in your life for the flourishing of other people. That's why you take authority. That's why you should have authority. It wasn't about dominating other people, controlling other people, being able to boss people around. It was a humbling call to sacrifice. Healthy, godly masculinity, the Bible teaches us, is expressed as the servant leader. In Matthew 20, Jesus has these disciples and they're arguing, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to get to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? 
it should be me. Oh no, it should be me. And they're and they're tallying up. You know, this is what this is what um, qualifies me to be above you, Peter. Oh no, Andrew, like you're not because I'm a pecking order. And they had their own cultural, um, uh, you know, talking points to say, well, actually, this is really what it means to be great. And so I'm greater than you. And 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 Jesus pulls them and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He says. The pattern of this world, the pattern of um, non-believing people is to move into positions of authority so that they can dominate other people. That's the pattern. That's normal. And he says, not so with you. If you want to be great, and whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Because just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I am now your model of healthy masculinity, of godly masculinity. And there is room in this vision to be great. There is room for masculine ambition. Yeah. Tap into those competitive instincts. But what does it look like to be the best? What does it look like to be great? It doesn't look like being on top and being able to lord it over other people. It looks like being strong and powerful and using that at every turn to lift others up, to provide and protect, to encourage, to strengthen others. Healthy, godly masculinity is focused on growing strong in mind and body and spirit for the sake of others, other friendships and within your marriage, your family and your community. So let me talk specifically to the men here. How do we begin as men to act like men? Or as maybe a looser translation would be to like literally man up. To rise to who we were called to be as men. And leave both of these really dead-end secular scripts behind us. Well, the first thing, and I'm a pastor, so I got to say this because I believe it. I don't think you can become a fully alive man a healthy, masculine man without Christ at the center of your life. You need to turn to Christ. Jesus is the one who is fully God and fully man. He is the author and finisher of the faith. He's the word made flesh. He's the alpha and the omega. He is the center of reality. You will not fully embrace and understand who you are, who you're meant to be, what you're called to do in this world until you make Christ the center. Until you humble yourselves And like Jesus, begin saying, God, how do I come under submission to you in order to express a masculinity that is characterized by meekness? And meekness biblically is not... Meekness is power under control. It's power under control for a greater purpose. You need Jesus to begin setting your heart and mind right so that you not just are willing to live a life of service and sacrifice, but that you crave it. That's what you actually want. Jesus is the redeemer. You need him to redeem you from both of those false scripts. Whether you've lived down, whether you've gone down the path of self-loathing and self-hatred, self-suspicion, or you've gone down the path of the rugged, hyper-masculine, I don't need anybody, again, living with your finger to the world, 
You need redemption. You need salvation from both of those scripts. And Jesus shows you how to be caring and courageous and tough and tender, powerful and gracious. One of the best lines from Return of the King is in the house of healing. And there's a prophecy long before that when the king returns to Gondor, the way you will know that the king has returned is certain characteristics. And the characteristics that is pointed out in one of the prophecies is that the hands of the, the, hands of the king will be healing hands. And that's the kind of king Jesus is. The hands of the king are healing hands. Some of us need to be healed from genuinely uh, toxic expressions of our masculinity that have manifested in our life. No other worldview, philosophy, has this kind of way of understanding masculinity. It will actually set you on a path as a man to be inspiring, that will, be, that will build into other people in a constructive way. But again, I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about using Jesus as our model for understanding masculinity, and then we just kind of try and do our best. We actually need Jesus' power to free us from sin's power and penalty. We need Jesus to place a new heart in us. We need to be born again, where we leave behind the self-centered scripts that we've inherited from our family of origins, from the culture, and to embrace the biblical script of creation, fall, redemption, new creation. God, what does that look like in my life? We need to turn away from the I can do it myself. That's what it means to be a man. No, those are delusions. You need to embrace the king. You need to embrace Jesus as Lord over your life. He must become your Lord and your God and your leader, not just a spiritual guru or consultant. So the first thing is turn to Christ. The second thing, start building. Start building into yourself, into your marriage into your families, into your communities in, in sacrificial ways. That's the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Take things in this world and make it. Start an after-school club for kids. Start serving within your church. Start looking for ways that you can um, pour yourself out for the benefit of others. Um, Richard Reeves, he's not a Christian, but he uh, does a lot of work on the boyhood crisis. He said, boys become men the moment they start creating more than they stop than they are consuming. Boys become men the moment they start creating, contributing more than they consume. And I heard someone once say, their father told them, yeah, the question was like, when do you become a man? And the father said, you become a man the day you take responsibility for someone other than yourself. You become a man the day you take responsibility for someone else. And every man in that room can do that right now. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have kids. You don't have to be old. You don't have to have everything together. You can start taking responsibility for your own life to grow into that vision of a holy warrior, a knight. You can turn your life over to Christ and begin building into friendships and marriages and communities. We now know the impact that fatherless homes has on the children who are raised in them. Irrespective of how good single mothers rise to the occasion, a fatherless home, the children from fatherless homes 
you just Google this, are at massive disadvantages when it comes to the formation of pro-social behaviors and attitudes over their life. It's a massive liability to not have a father in the home. And now we are living in a culture that is fatherless. Our culture doesn't have... Um, our culture is not even holding up masculinity in men as a viable role model. And that's dangerous. And we can't stem that tide instantly overnight. You can start where you are, in your own families, in your own community, in this church. And the last thing is turn to Christ, start building, and start getting stronger every single day. Start strengthening yourself, mind, body, and spirit. Doesn't mean you have to look like, you don't have to be like um, physically ideal physical specimen six pack and you don't need to have like the spiritual six pack whatever that looks like and that you know it's not that it's just saying here i am i'm going to get stronger today i'm going to challenge myself to grow intellectually to get stronger physically to get stronger mentally maybe just a little step today but i'm doing that why because a healthy godly man will always be seeking to grow stronger so that they can be a blessing to other people if you are a man and you've gotten to your stage of life where it's like spiritually, physically, emotionally, whatever it is, and you're kind of like, yeah, this is good. Who's control? That's not healthy. That's not good. There should be a desire in you to continue to challenge yourself. Not as some self-serving, self-improvement project, but for the sake of the world. You do not understand or know the impact that you can have on even just other people seeing you commit to that. A strong, robust masculinity, oh sorry, um, and when I say grow mind and body and spirit, it's really important to do this together with other men. You need to kill the image of a rugged, independent man. The Bible doesn't hold out anything like that. In fact, the very, very, very first declaration by Almighty God that it is not good was what? It is not good for what? For the man to be alone, to be alone, to live in isolation. That is the fundamental not good part of reality. So if you think that being a real man or a godly man, yeah, I have Jesus and I'm doing stuff, but it's like, it's just like a, it's just me and Jesus doing the thing and I don't, I don't need other people. Again, you are a fool. You're not reading your Bible. God has set us in families and in communities and in brotherhoods and in friendships. We need other men in our lives to help us, to hold us accountable. Men need other men to grow and mature into their God-given potential. Richard Reeves, again, that author on the boyhood crisis, he says, a strong, robust masculinity is not forged in isolation and introspection, but it's forged in relationships and in service. The construction of masculinity is a cultural task faced by every human society. And this is why you need to get stronger every day. Because he says, it has to be taught and learned. And above all, it has to be shown. Because boys believe with their eyes more than their ears. That's why it's important for you, regardless of how you feel, to make it your ambition to grow stronger in mind, body, and spirit every day. To grow towards Keith. What's, what's, your, uh, what's the karate firm and unyielding spirit? Yeah, it's awesome. 
So my son goes to his karate class on Monday and Friday night, and we talk about that all the time. It's not just about getting some, you know, some antsies out and getting some exercise. It's about training your mind and body and spirit to be unyielding, to be strong. Why? So that you can provide and protect for other people. And church is one of the few places that you're going to be challenged to do that. So even if you're not a believer, even if you're hesitant about religion or Christianity, you don't know where you are with Jesus, God, the Bible, just start showing up to church. It doesn't have to be this one, but start showing up. Because I, I just don't think you're going to get this kind of challenge. And I hope it's an inspiring one, but you're not going to get it anywhere else. So in conclusion, there's three scripts that are on offer to every man in this room. One where you embrace a, a shaming um, view of masculinity that is pathologizing, and that will result in docility and disengagement and ultimately despair. You can reject that, and you can rebel into the barbarian lifestyle, but that's going to trap you in the worst, most self-centered vices of your soul, and it's going to keep you in a childish cycle of just chasing power and possessions and pleasure as these definers of success or that you somehow arrived as a real man. Or you can reject both of those scripts and turn to Christ and find him not just as an example of a redeemed masculinity, but find in him a power to leave those other scripts behind and enter into something new and dynamic and empowering, truly empowering, to step into a power that will help you to act like a man and to put aside the ranger and to become who you were actually born to be for God's glory and the good of the world.